gospel. And the thing about going through a whole book is means you don't skip over parts that are really difficult, parts that you maybe kind of want to skip over. I don't really want to talk about that. Um, but this section is really all about dignity for other people. It's about dignity in our relationships and how we treat people especially. I mean, everyone wants to be treated with dignity, and when we don't get treated with dignity, we don't like that. That's a very common human experience. What Jesus is saying here in these kind of verses, and as he will continue to say in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, is that human relationships are important. They're very important. Uh, they're important for many reasons, but the reason why Jesus is focusing so much on it is in talking to his disciples, or people who follow him, he's saying that what we do here on earth ought to reflect what goes on in heaven. Like the, what, the way we treat people here is the way people ought to be treated. There is an ought in the way we are supposed to live that isn't always kind of reflected here on earth and just the way things are. And we, as Jesus' family, as people in God's kingdom, we're called to give other people dignity. Now, in contrast to dignity, so dignity is great. Yes, we love it. It's great. In contrast to that is objectification. And that's kind of what Jesus is going after here. There is no dignity in objectification. It's kind of like the definition. To objectify someone is an attempt to replace a person as a thing. And we'll learn a little bit in how we objectify others here with a particular focus on how we men often objectify women. But Jesus, as he was in the previous verses, and he will continue to be this way, is very black and white. I mean, people are, the whole bodies are going into hell. Like, that's pretty black and white. It's not like, ah, oh, maybe it'd be good if you did this. Maybe it'd be bad if you didn't do it. But Jesus is clear. But also, we can be pretty black and white as well, I think. When someone wrongs someone, especially if it's a man objectifying a woman, we want to see justice done. That's what cancel culture is all about. Now, it may not end up in the best kind of way, may not proceed with justice in the best kind of way at all times, but cancel culture comes at this thing of, we want to see justice rule in a place where it doesn't seem to be, and that's why it exists to begin with. And so I think there's probably parts of all of us that want to see good prevail and bad not prevail, that wants to see justice be done where it kind of needs to be even if wires kind of flap around in the background here. Pay no attention. So that's um, a bit of what we're going to talk about. Um, but in all of this, in the objectification and in, in dignity and in, in our want to see justice happen, we have a few problems here. Um, the first is, like, what does it mean to treat people with dignity? We kind of know the generic answer, but we don't maybe know how all that works out specifically. We don't always know the best way. What does it mean to honor a parent when that parent's not really been a good parent to you growing up? That's a difficult question. How do you navigate that? What's the best way to love a partner that can be difficult? Maybe you're married to that person. How, how do you love them well? And then what is the correct application of justice when someone hasn't been treated with dignity? We don't always know the right answer there. Do we destroy them? Do we pretend it never happened? Like, how do we go on? These aren't easy answers, and so we need someone to show us the way. But even in the, in the answer, so we may, not, we may not know a lot of things, and there's some thing, information we need to have, but also in the things that we do know, we don't always follow through in the way that we ought to. In just kind of the bar that we have set and our own ideas, whether they're right or wrong, and our own ideas of what's good or bad, we don't always kind of rise to that. We might be missing information on how to treat people with dignity, but there is plenty of information we do have, and with that, we don't measure up. We're mean when we ought not to be. We look at each other and use each other, not for someone else's sake, but for our own sake. And so are things, there are things that we don't know, but in what we do know, we don't do them. We're all sorts of messed up, every single one of us, wherever you are with Jesus. And Jesus here is teaching us how to live in a way that loves other, other people well. And Jesus will, will, um, will promise his Holy Spirit, God himself, to live out in the way that he's calling us to live here. So Jesus not only teaches the way, but enables us to live it out. 
Now, Jesus here is going to re- reference some uh, popular ideas. It, it, like when he says, you've heard it said this. Sometimes that's um, actually like in the Old Testament, like uh, one of the commandments. Sometimes that's like com- common Jewish law of what might be going on. It's like, here's the kind of what you think life is all about, but I say to you. And when Jesus says, but I say to you, that's basically equating himself with God. You may have heard, you may have heard it said this one commandment. Where did the Ten Commandments come? In the Christian tradition, Ten Commandments came from God. And Jesus is saying, but I say to you. So he's very from, from the beginning saying, I am God here, I'm telling you how to live. Without saying kind of like, I'm God, I'm telling you how to live. But everyone there would have totally recognized like this is a very like, different way that people have spoken. And here, what he's really talking about, uh, specifically when it comes to dignity, is lust and divorce. Lust and divorce. Uh, so we're first going to talk about lust, which is a word that we use in the church. We don't really use that kind of out normally, but let's, let's talk about it for a moment. Looking at a woman lustfully, as Jesus says, in order to desire her. That's like an ownership kind of desire. It's, an owner, it's self-centric looking. It's, that's an objectification. I'm looking at someone because I'm getting some benefit from it, and that person's not getting any benefit from it. It's kind of like, oh, cool. That's a cool car. I want that car. Oh, cool. There's a good-looking person. I want that person. It's kind of the same kind of thing. It's an ownership, as if it's some kind of collection, a desire to have, not a desire to truly love anybody. When someone's staring at one another, their thought in their head isn't like, I just wonder how I could serve them really well. No, you're not thinking, like, you just think, oh, that person's hot. Like, it's kind of, that's the only things that are going through your head. This is more than looking, though, what Jesus is talking about. This is looking for sex. This is like, it's just sexual related. It's self-centered sexual related. So love in the meaning of the idea itself is a completely other-centric thing. It's about loving the other person. It's a self. This, what Jesus is attacking, is a self-centered desire to use, to own, to be in control of. I mean, this is why pornography is a thing. Yeah, I said sex. Yes, I said pornography. We'll say it a few more times. It'll be cringy for you, probably. Just imagine what it's like for me. So this is why pornography is a thing. People on the screen are objectified as sexual objects. It's, I mean, it's like you can't get any more clear on what that's like. And we use our eyes not to instill dignity, but to continue the objectification of others. In God's eyes. This objectification in our heart is just as bad as the sin of adultery itself. So in God's eyes, it deserves punishment. Now, we talked about anger and murder last week, and we talked about how those were equated in God's world. But if you murder somebody, there are a lot more practical consequences than if you're just angry with somebody. But with God, it's all the same. Same kind of thing here. If you look after somebody and, and versus doing anything, it's, in God's economy, it's, it's all the same. In God's world, they're both sin. And all sin, really what it is, is just betraying God, regardless of the activity. It's, just, it's a betrayal. It's a treason. Uh, if you're, I don't know if anyone has watched Arrested Development, and this will completely fall flat if you haven't, but one of the main characters is accused of treason, and his response is, there's a good chance I may have committed some light treason. <laughs> See, light treason isn't a thing. <laughs> light treason is treason. Treason is treason. Like, regardless of what the thing is, the same kind of thing when we come to God. Any kind of betrayal of, God's, of how God wants this, this kingdom, his kingdom, his world to be run is the same kind of betrayal. If you lightly betray him or like full out betray him, it's the same kind of consequence. Now, um, let's shine a light on something here, and this is primarily addressed to men. I'm sorry, women, but I have to focus on guys for a bit here for a moment. Because men, we have, a pro- well, we have many problems as men, of course. Uh, but there's one particular problem here that Jesus is talking about. Instead of using what God has given us to build up women, historically, what have we done? Pretty much the opposite. The most powerful men in history, you know, 
you wouldn't say, oh, you know what's hand in hand with powerful men? The way they support women in their lives. Like, that's just not really what we see. That's, unfortunately, that's, that's been the reality. And what is history but the story over and over of men abusing the power that they have, often to the detriment of women, and the church is not immune to that kind of abuse, unfortunately. That sucks that's true, but unfortunately that's true. Now, you don't have to live in an ongoing apology for things that were done before you were born. And you don't have to live this ap- ap- like, ap- like, just because you're a man, you have to be sorry for it. But you were given many gifts from God, not to put yourself forward, but to support other people, to support other women, not to objectify women, not to demean them, but to support them. The power that you do have, whatever it is, isn't for you. It's a gift. If it's a gift, how weird would it be if you get a gift and just keep it for yourself? It doesn't become a gift anymore. If you've been given a gift, it's to give to somebody else for someone else's sake. Just think of the, uh, the example of Jesus, the most powerful man who's ever walked this earth. And how did he use his power? He wasn't destroying people. He wasn't objectifying people. In fact, he poured himself out for other people's sake over and over in serving others and in using his strength for those who needed it. But we, men, were often stuck in a mode of objectification. The porn industry doesn't exist if it weren't so, but does, let alone many other dehumanizing industries out there. Now, obviously, men are not the only ones who look at porn or whatever, or struggle with objectifying others, who struggle with lust. But we men have a minor big, might have a bigger problem with it, but it does affect everybody. But, and this, I hope, doesn't come across as kind of part of the patriarchy, but I wonder, men, if we could possibly lead the way in affording dignity to everyone. Could we possibly do that as men? Because that, wouldn't that be a great thing to be known for, like in this church or in this community or even just in your own life, that what you did was really pave the way for others and supported other women? That would be great. I would love to live that way. And then real life happens and we don't live that way, right? We have issues there. That's, that's who I want to be, and that's what I want my, this world to be. That's the kind of people I want to hang out with. Now, um, the church doesn't always do a great I don't know if you found this. The church doesn't always do a great job talking about sex. Have you ever noticed that? In fact, the church doesn't really talk about sex um, because it can be cringe, as it might be for you right now. It can also be very dangerous if they talk about it wrongly. I mean, one example is, and I don't know how much of this is a thing here, I'm sure it was in some conservative evangelical circles, but definitely was a thing in America. It was purity culture. I don't know if you've heard this term before, purity culture. If you've never heard that term before, it was basically in the 90s and the 2000s. It was very popular in Christianized cultures. It kind of made your whole life depend on your sexual life. Your whole spiritual life depend on how you're doing like, with your own sexual drive. If you watch porn that day, Jesus doesn't love you. Maybe next, maybe tomorrow he'll love you, and you decide to try really hard. If you had sex before you were married, you were second class. It was big on confession, but because it was guilt and shame driven, it, what it did really well was taught people how to hide. I'm not going to confess this if I'm just going to get beat down, so I'm just going to try and hide as much as possible. And when people hide, self-righteousness comes out to play. If our honesty and our authenticity is hidden away, what remains? Well, just our ego, just the, us wanting to prove ourselves that we're okay. Purity culture was an institution created mostly by men. So women were often to blame. Oh, it's because of what they wear, it's because of how they act and how they speak. As if they had the issue. Like, I mean, you can be wise or unwise, but men had the issue. I mean, purity culture kind of bordered on ideas that were borrowed from Islam, really. And maybe the one of the biggest problems that it sought to do was to convert people to a heteronormative married life. Now, being married is good. I recommend it. Having kids is good. I recommend it. I mean, I only, I only have one, so I don't know what plural kids is like. You can ask Tim and Ruth about that. But um, I'm, I'm a fan of kids, right? More people should get married. More people should have kids. That's great. But Jesus doesn't call everyone to get married. 
That's just true. He doesn't call everyone to have kids. Jesus doesn't ask people to convert to a heterosexual nuclear family, and then if you do that, then he's really going to love you. It's just not how it works. He asks all of us, with all of our issues, to follow him and how he's told us. And that is difficult enough. We don't need to add anything more to it. It's difficult enough. Basically, Jesus is like, only sleep with people who you're married to. That's it. That's really hard to follow, especially when you define, we talk about um, adultery and lust in the way that Jesus is here. For some people, following Jesus will mean never being married. For others, it will mean getting married. It might be equally difficult to both people. I think really the ultimate problem with purity culture or talking about sex in that way is no one will ever be pure enough. You can never get yourself pure enough. Now, I'm not saying we should get rid of Jesus's ethics or, or the Bible's sexual ethics or anything like that. But the question is, what are we seeking after here? Are we seeking after to prove ourselves to be pure or are we seeking after something else? Maybe a good illustration is that of uh, King David in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with who he was, he was kind of like the epitome of Israel's greatest king in the Old Testament. He was, uh, he played the harp, so he was like a poet, he was a shepherd, he was a king, he was like all the things. He was, he was like the coolest guy you ever met, and he looked really good too, apparently. So he was really good looking as well. Apparently he was short, so plus for him. Well, the, in, in the Old Testament, David the king, uh, he, there was this um, situation where he wasn't out at battle. All his army was out in battle, doing the things that kings do, fighting each other at that time. Um, but he was safe inside of his castle. He saw a woman, Bathsheba, bathing. And with the same kind of ease that we would have in lifting up our laptop screen, he summoned Bathsheba to him. Now, this objectified woman being told to visit the king, what kind of hope, she didn't have like, you know, any kind of recourse there. Like, she kind of has to do what the king tells her to do. And then she's pregnant. And then David betrays one of his best mates and one of his best warriors, puts him on the front line so he gets killed because he's married to Bathsheba. He wants to cover it all up. Now, this sounds really horrible, right? If anyone deserves to be canceled, surely it should be King David. Like, but he wrote the majority of our Psalms. Like, can we read these anymore? Is it like, can I fix... Are we allowed to watch like Kevin Spacey films? Like I, I don't know. Like are we allowed to do? Like at what point are we going to figure out what of these things can we read and what we can't read? Even after all that, David was also called a man after God's own heart. How can those two things be true? How can someone who completely abused his power in like really disgusting, shameful ways? How can he also be someone who's after God's own heart? This sounds like the kind of the person that Jesus is talking about when he says their whole body's going to be thrown into hell. That sounds exactly like David ticks all those boxes. So David completely messed up everything, and God was still able to welcome him. We'll get to that in a moment, so put a pin in that, because it seems like those are two different worlds. And um, let's, for a moment, though, talk about mutilation. I don't often get to say that sentence very often, so that's pretty fun. Um, what Jesus talks about here is it would be better for you know, part of your body to, to get thrown off instead of your whole body getting thrown in hell. Now, this is, by the way, metaphorical. Very important to know that. Origen was a church father, early church father. He didn't think it was metaphorical. He thought it was literal and cut a part of him off. You can imagine what he cut off. Um, so don't do that to yourself. And also, the Bible itself, by the way, forbids mutilation. Like Deuteronomy 14 says, like, you ought not to cut parts of your body and all this kind of stuff and all kinds of worship. So it's important to know context. It's important to know the context in the, the way that Jesus is speaking, the way of the time. It's important to know the context of the entire Bible. Otherwise, you might cut something off that you will regret later. So uh, the Bible itself uh, and the text itself, this mutilation is metaphorical. If you have questions about that, we can chat more about that. Um, 
But what Jesus is trying to say is this. It doesn't get any more serious than this. There's a common way of talking for rabbis in the time to basically say, this is really important, and if this is a problem, you need to cut part of your body off. It was a way of saying, you need to listen. This is super serious. So even though it's a metaphorical kind of mutilation talking about here, it doesn't undo any of the, the gravity that Jesus is trying to talk about. And then he talks about um, it, it, cutting something off that might cause you to stumble. What, what, what does that mean? That sounds a very, again, another churchy term, cause you to stumble. What does that mean? Well, stumbling is something that deflects a person from God's path. A stumbling block is a person or a thing which gets in the way of God's life. That could be other people, that could be yourself. Stumbling that isn't dealt with eventually can lead to a fatal flaw. So what is this thing all about? Basically, Jesus is saying the loss of some things, like one body part, for the gain of everything, your whole body. Like you get to gain your whole body, or at least what you might have left. And we see this, of course, in other areas of life. If you want to get more healthy, you're going to lose time and money because you're going to go to a gym. Maybe you'll lose some time sleeping, whatever, because you're going to go to a gym. But what you're going to gain is you're going to gain health or, you know, whatever, you know, you're going to get buff or something like that. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. The loss of some things is required for the gain of everything. The loss of 15 minutes of sleep to gain some time with the Lord. I mean, in this passage, the loss of some internet privacy or access maybe because you have software on your computer or phone to report or block what you do. Maybe it means foregoing time online because you, just, you can't be trusted with it because you know eventually it's not going to be good. Now, I don't know what you need to do, and everyone has their own thing, but you need to do what you need to do in order to do what God's saying. Can I say that again? You need to do what you need to do in order to follow through in the way that God's requiring here. So the loss of some things is required for the gain of everything. But here's the thing. If you do get everything, it's really easy to have the loss of a few things. Actually, you have everything. So yeah, you can give away a few things because you have everything. So we can lose something small and avoid the whole of us being separated from God and we get to be whole in Jesus. That's what we get. Now, in our hearts, we are to give everyone dignity. And if that's what's going on inside, that's what's going to go on outside. We've talked a lot about this already, like the inside-outside thing. What goes on in here is what goes on out here. Instead of trying to do the opposite, trying to do really good things to make this go on good. So next up, Jesus tackles the relatively uncontroversial idea of divorce. Oh, let's talk about, we're just going to get into these, aren't we? Um, I should have given Sam these, uh, these verses to preach through, but I was nice, I guess. Um, now, let's just talk about the background of divorce kind of for a moment. Um, divorce in this context was purely a male privilege. Women couldn't divorce. Also, there was no advantage for a woman to divorce a man during this time, during first century um, ancient Near East. It required no legal hearing. It was merely the husband's decision. I was reading on all the the reasons that a husband could give in order to divorce his wife. One was like, oh, if she slept with somebody else. One was like, if she made dinner in a way that he wasn't pleased with. Or one was if he just happened to fancy someone else. He could just kind of get divorced. There's like all sorts of things. Basically, there's no, basically, a man could do whatever he wanted, unsurprisingly. Uh, for a woman whose ability to work was much more limited than, than a man, it was a completely lopsided situation. Wrongful divorce that was perpetuated by men during Jesus' time here led to women being victimized. So after a woman was divorced, it was really common practice, regardless of the reason, to treat a woman as if she was an adulteress, which during that time, loads of communal shame that would be heaped on her. This is how a woman being divorced could be a victim of adultery, even if she never actually did anything, and he never did anything with another woman. So if you thought purity culture was bad, just wait to get to first century Judaism. Like, this is really bad. What Jesus is saying here is that a divorce that isn't legitimate means the original marriage is still valid in God's sight. But here, 
Jesus isn't giving kind of all the acceptable grounds of divorce. He's not saying, so in order to get divorced, here's all the things that are acceptable, here's the things that are not acceptable. He's giving kind of a broad brushstroke. And what he's really trying to get to is the problem of divorce itself. And Jesus speaks again about divorce in Matthew 19. Uh, I'm just going to be on the screen and we'll, I'll just read it out here. Uh, some Pharisees came to test him, so here they are, kind of put Jesus in a bind. Pharisees were kind of like these lay leaders that thought they knew everything. Um, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So you know where they're coming at, because they probably have heard these words before. And they're like, well, we're going to test this out, see what he says. This is Jesus' response. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, where God is joined together, let no other separate, which you might have heard maybe if you've been to a wedding. Uh, why then, they asked, these leaders, did Moses command that a man give, his, give his, his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It's not like divorce was a good thing, but it was not this way from the beginning. It's not the original intent. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery, very similar to what he's saying here. The disciples said to him, if there's a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. They might be onto something. I don't know. And then Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word. So it's not easy, but only those to whom it's been given. There are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, so whether by nature or by nurture. And there are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, eunuch is someone who um, uh, wasn't attracted to male or female, same sex or opposite sex. Uh, the one who can accept this should accept it. So we have kind of like these general categories that Jesus has out here. And then Paul also expands on these, on divorce. I'm just kind of give a brief kind of background divorce because otherwise I don't want to seem too narrow-minded. Paul talks about divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 7, 12 through 16. I won't read it. But basically what Paul says is there's infidelity and that is, that's definitely like legitimate means for divorce because that partner has broken that promise, broken that covenant to another person. But then there's also this um, idea of someone leaving the marriage. If someone leaves the marriage, like, let them go. Like, you can't do anything about it. And that's beyond a geographical leaving. That's someone who's broken, like, the covenant promises between another person. Basically what Paul says, I mean, especially in, in the realm of abuse, like, that, that breaks the covenant, the, the promise of someone wanting to love another person. What Paul says, if that happens, if someone leaves the marriage, you're free to remarry as they broke the promise he made to you to always be with you, to always support you, always love you, all those things. And Paul also says, don't think that just remaining married to that person means they're going to change them. Like, who knows how they're going to change? But you staying married to them isn't necessarily going to be the way. And there's loads of questions more about divorce. And you can, if you are interested in those, you can go to redeemermcr.com slash ask anonymously, send in questions. We'll talk about them after the sermon. But we, this is not a full, here's all the info on divorce. I just want to give a brief kind of overview of other things that were going on. But of course, with anything related to divorce, it's never an overnight decision. It's never that way. It's a long time of working together, working with others, and it's really as a last resort. Ideally, divorce never happens, but we don't live in an ideal world. We live in the real world. In the real world, unfortunately, that happens at times. In the real world, there are times when divorce can be an acceptable path. Now, because Jesus isn't laying out all the rules of divorce here, you might have loads of questions, like, what if uh, I divorce someone not for these reasons? Uh, divorce need not create second-class citizens. That was the issue with divorce in Jesus' day, and that's not what Jesus is trying to instill here. If you did divorce someone, and it wasn't because of an affair or something leaving the marriage, there is room for forgiveness from God. I mean, look at David. There's room for forgiveness from God. 
Or let's say you got divorced, and maybe not in a way that you should have, and now you're married. Does that mean you should divorce the person who you're with in order to try and like remarry that person who you're with? Every situation is different, and there's going to be answers to every single one of those that, that will be different. But my foundational baseline, I think what Jesus is saying here, is he's not calling for more divorce. He's calling for less, calling for less divorce. So we can talk about, if you have questions about specific situations, I'm more than happy to chat about those. Um, because the answer might actually be something different, but the starting point is divorce is not good. So let's do less of that. Let's do less of the bad thing. What really Jesus is trying to get us to do is to look at the broader picture, not to get mired up in the details, I'm, but I'm happy to chat through those details. But what Jesus is talking about here isn't the details. It's talking about the broad strokes. He's talking about what we do in this world as Christians ought to reflect God's kingdom as it ought to be. Now, marriage is a symbol of oneness, the way that Jesus talked about it. It's two different things becoming one thing. And before it's anything enjoyable for us, it's a picture of how Christ and the church are in relationship with each other. Now, we have marriage because Jesus' relationship to the church. It wasn't like we have marriage because God's like, oh, they're going to love this. I'll give them marriage. No, the reason why we have marriage is because of, of the way that Jesus and his church interact. In fact, often in the Bible, you'll hear the church called Jesus' bride. It's a very kind of marital language. The great thing about Jesus is he's never leaving. He's never off looking for someone more interesting. He's never objectifying us. He's never objectifying other people. He is 100% dedicated to his bride. He loves his bride. He does everything he can for us. And a divorce is, in effect, telling a false story about how Jesus interacts with his church. So if marriage is supposed to reflect Jesus in the church, divorce is saying something that's not true of God. Now, of course, there are times for divorce, but in all this, remember, regardless of wherever you're coming from this, and wherever you might have experienced yourself, there's always room for forgiveness. There's never not room for forgiveness. And again, you might have loads more questions. I'm not able to get to everything, but you can go to that website and anonymously enter one in. But speaking of David, let's talk about David again. David completely messed everything up, and God still welcomed him, and he was called a man after God's own heart. Like kind of his reputation was to like a man after God's own heart. How can God be just to care about other people, and still do that with David? How, how does that work? Shouldn't, we, shouldn't God cancel David before we have to think about it? Shouldn't God have canceled him? And that's what hell is all about, this place outside the city, uh, isolated. It was this rubbish tip. It was a gross and nasty place where fires are always smoldering. That's where that word hell comes from, this word Gehenna. That's not a place where people flourish. Shouldn't that, that, that should be where David goes, right? That, that's a place for him. And we die, if, if we're not connected to God, that's what we choose for ourselves. Well, if God cancels David, surely, the way that Jesus talks about sin, God has to cancel every single one of us. Who in their heart has ever objectified another person? Is it just me? Just me? That's weird. It's just, I'm sure it's not just me. Who in their heart hasn't afforded someone the dignity they deserve? Who has contributed to a broken relationship? Remember, light treason is still treason. Now, I don't know your specific past, but I do know that you have one. We all do. All of us deserve to be canceled in our own, for our own reasons. All of us deserve to be in that pit of hell, our whole body. And that is exactly why Jesus came to earth, to do more than just deliver a message. He made it possible for us, the self-centered, others-objectifying, dignity-robbing people, to be known, to be embraced, and actually to be loved by God. Outside of Jesus doing what he did, we have no place in his kingdom. Like, surely we see that, right? We've only looked at a few verses here. And if you've been here for a few other messages around the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, this is really tough stuff. 
Unless someone else took our punishment, we deserve for our whole body to go into hell. And who could really do that except God himself? If someone else did, that wouldn't matter for me. But if God did that, that might be something. And then more than that, Jesus in his resurrection gives us his Holy Spirit so we can actually live in this way. So we can live in a way that gives dignity to others and doesn't objectify them. This is how someone like David can make huge mistakes, completely huge mistakes, and also be after God's heart. You're actually a lot more like David than you are like Jesus. You may have had some big mistakes, and justice will come either to you or he takes it away. And when he takes away our punishment, he gives us himself. It's not just taking away our punishment full stop, as great as that would be. He also gives us himself. Like David, we've completely messed all this up. And like David, God still welcomes us through Jesus. And the Holy Spirit at work in us empowers us to give other people dignity, empowers us to serve others, to love others, to treat other people as we're called to do, the way that Jesus talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount. So as we come to him, for all who are Christians, for everyone who follows Jesus, oh, sorry, we lift up our need. You have these um, under your chair. This is for people who are believers to worship God with. It's called the Lord's Supper. And basically, when we take this, what we're saying is without God, we are empty. Without God, we don't live the way that we ought to. Without him, we are under a punishment beyond our control, utterly beyond our control. But with him, we get to be filled. We get to be empowered, to be fully alive. And instead of punishment, we get a reward. And this is it for Christians. This is what we get. The bread is a symbol of Jesus' whole body. The reward that we get through being with him is him. Let's eat. Let's eat.